Uh, three weeks ago, we began a series called Explore God, which consists of these seven uh, messages and seven really conversations also, hopefully, in small groups and in your life and other places around these seven foundational questions or the following important questions. Does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus God? Is the Bible reliable? And can I know God personally? And believing that these are seven questions that are asked by people both outside the church and outside the Christian faith and also inside the church, our hope with this series or our hopes are several. First, to take seriously the questions of curious and thoughtful people. To take seriously the questions of serious and thoughtful people, uh, curious and thoughtful people, both inside the church and outside the church, inside Christianity and outside Christianity, and to deal openly with questions, particularly that people beyond the walls of the church uh, may have, but don't have a forum or a place or a way to uh, converse about those. Second, to open the door for conversations and safe space for those conversations within the church and within the Christian faith because for a lot of people, we grew up in the church and it was sort of taboo. It wasn't okay to ask these sorts of questions, to be really honest about what's going on deep in our hearts and deep in our minds. And so we wanna provide safe space for those of us who may have asked those questions consciously or unconsciously and to allow us space to really process some of those outwardly and inwardly. And third, to equip people who are in Christ to have those sorts of conversations around these big seven questions with people in their own lives. Again, people who don't intersect with the church, who don't normally have ways and people and contexts and arenas in which to have these important conversations. So to take seriously these questions, to open the door for conversations, and to equip people, us, for having these conversations outside of this space and outside of your church small group with other people for whom these questions really do matter. Over the last three weeks, we talked about uh, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? This morning, we're gonna deal with the next question. Is Christianity too narrow? Is Christianity too narrow? First, let's pray one more time. God, you be our teacher. Uh, Help us to be available to you. Help us to be malleable uh, like clay in the hands of a potter, a good potter. Help us to be open to thinking differently. Uh, Shape us by your word into the people that you would have us be. Uh, As followers of Jesus, apprentices of the Christ, as children of you, uh, the living God, I ask and pray that as my words are true to your word, that it would be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is Christianity too narrow? I posed this question to some friends this week, and two friends in particular uh, responded uh, uh, eagerly, quickly, adamantly. And they both shot back at me, Matthew 7 13 and 14. And as you know, those are two verses laid in Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus teaches his disciples about kingdom living. We spent a few months in the Sermon on the Mount not too long ago. And verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 go like this. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, life with a capital L, Zoe, and only a few find it. And so it's true that Jesus here uses the word narrow, 
Yes. But what Jesus is talking about here as being narrow is not, I don't think, what most people are thinking about when they wonder if Christianity is too narrow. When Jesus speaks here of the narrow gate, first of all, he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the core people in his family. He's not talking to people out there. He's not talking about people who are living destructive lifestyles by some definition out there. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, my way is a narrow, narrow way. More specifically, Jesus is speaking of uh, living in God's kingdom now, as he had just described it in the previous two chapters in his Sermon on the Mount, the pinnacle of which was, uh, in a variety of ways, love. Right, you remember that. When I know the narrow way, it's the way of love because that's not the way of the world. My way is love. Enter through the narrow gate. And that narrow gate is also the way that is free of lust and hate and judgmentalism and greed and fear. The narrow way, as Jesus had just described it in his sermon, involves and includes prayer and fasting and giving, but doing so in private and in secret without boasting, without showing off. And Jesus' narrow gate or narrow way, his road less travels, involves loving one's enemies, you remember, and doing to others as you would have them do to you. That is Jesus' road less traveled. That's what he meant by narrow. It is the good life of living in God's kingdom. And that, is that too narrow? Not for me. It's difficult. But it is not what I would consider too narrow. It is loaded with goodness and abundance and health and happiness and shalom and love. Is it too narrow? Absolutely not. I don't think so. There's another meaning, a second meaning or understanding or realm of narrow, and it goes like this, or it feels like this, or it sounds like this. To be a Christian or to be a true Christian or a real Christian, you've got to be like us. And we see this and we hear this attitude or this position and sometimes even these words among a variety of Christian traditions and streams, and they usually are really conservative and often fairly vocal. I think of one uh, family member, actually more than one, who are part of a particular, and not to slam, I'm not even gonna name, I was gonna name, I'm not gonna, a mainline, sort of mainline denomination, you might think it's mainline, who's very strict and doesn't consider other Christians to be true Christians. Only true Christians are in their church. There are the independent churches of Christ also that exist largely in the South who have a similar view. There's one very small Presbyterian denomination that uh, is certain that it represents better than anyone else on the face of the earth and any other church the most faithful expression of Christian faith and truth. There's some very, very big worldwide churches that go back hundreds and hundreds of years that are deeply immersed in particular traditions and practices and sometimes particular languages and cultures that think they are the way and to be a true Christian, you need to join their, their narrow way. There are plenty of random one-off Christian churches that sometimes drift into the realm of cults who say their people and not others are living the way, adhering to their specific principles and way of life and understanding. You gotta be like us, walk like us, talk like us, dress like us, eat like us, practice your faith just like us, live religiously like us. We are the true expression of Christian faith and faithfulness. So the story goes. But was Jesus really like this or like that? 
did he promote that? Was he like that? What did the Scriptures say? What sort of picture do the earliest and oldest and most reliable historical documents about Jesus paint? What sort of picture do they paint? The Gospel writers Matthew and Luke, think about it, went to great lengths to emphasize that Jesus was Jewish. He came from this long line, a royal line of Jewish ancestry, and yet Jesus, uh, and yet Matthew is very clear in noting that not all of the people in Jesus' family tree were Jewish. Some were outside of the Jewish race and even outside of the Jewish culture and actually abhorred by Jewish people. And that was just his lineage. Think about Matthew and Luke again, how they tell their stories to their readers about who showed up at Jesus' birth. In Luke's gospel, it's shepherds. It is shepherds, uneducated, unclean, lower half of the social ladder. And in Matthew's gospel, it's magi. They're astrologers, they're star readers, they're the tarot card, tarot card people on El, El Camino. They are star readers from the east, they're from another country, it's a pagan country. They no doubt spoke some foreign language. They show up and surround Jesus at his advent, at his coming into the world, his incarnation. Fast forward to the grown-up Jesus, he hung out with women, which when, and during that time was frowned upon by men who weren't related to those women. He hung out with the poor, with uh, oppressors, with the unclean, and with people who belonged to races with whom Jesus' people, the Jews, had been at odds for decades. Still are. Still are. Jesus was hanging out with them. Jesus was anything but narrow by some definitions. Going further, author Jim Baton has written the following about Jesus and his ministry, or what might be called the earliest version of Christianity. He writes, though most of Jesus' ministry occurred in a small region of the world to a largely homogenous Jewish society, Jesus still found opportunities to interact with people of foreign backgrounds who probably carried either partially or fully their traditional religions with them. Get that. Jesus spoke with Romans who came from a polytheistic background, with Syrians and Canaanites, traditionally worshipers of idols, including Baal and Ashtoreth and with Samaritans whose religion was similar to the Jews in that they followed the Torah and believed in the coming Messiah, but who had differences in how they worshiped and looked they did to Mount Gerasene as their holiest site. The Samaritan religion is still around today. The Gospels record Jesus' interactions with specific foreigners such as the Roman centurion with a sick servant, the Roman governor, Pilate, the Canaanite woman with a sick daughter, the Samaritan leper grateful for his healing, the sinful Samaritan woman at the well, and many unnamed sick and demonized people from the regions of Syria and the Decapolis who were most likely not Jewish. In all these interactions, we find Jesus' approach to be surprisingly different from how he approached the Pharisees or his own disciples. Surely Jesus desired that all of these foreigners leave their false religions and embrace the truth so how did he approach them? Reading each of the above passages, Baton continues, reveals several things Jesus did and several things Jesus didn't do. What Jesus did, he healed the sick, he delivered the demonically oppressed, he told people to tell others what God had done for them, he praised people for their great faith, he praised people as examples of what God wants, he announced that they would feast in heaven with the earlier prophets. Only when he was asked, did Jesus reveal himself as Messiah? John 4, or as king, John 16, 18. And then there's what Jesus didn't do. 
He didn't follow his own Jewish culture's strict religious practices. He kind of was somewhat detached from those. He didn't condemn or rebuke. He didn't warn of judgment or hell. He didn't argue theology, debate the scriptures, quote the scriptures, ask if people wanted to know the gospel, or ask people to change anything in those cases. Think about that for a moment. Jesus didn't try to convince people to believe specific, very specific things often or necessarily change their behavior or join his group or things like what we and the church have done historically for hundreds of years. He simply loved them, praised the good in them, and answered the questions that they were asking. Thus, in some ways or in some realms, it's difficult to paint Jesus, the Christ, as narrow. At times, and with some people, Jesus was anything but what we would call today narrow. That was Jesus, the Christ. But what about earliest Christianity? In other words, immediately after Jesus' resurrection. Immediately after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the world and make uh, disciples of them, apprentices, students of mine, into all the world, the nations, the Greek word is ethne, ethnic groups, people groups. Go to all of them, everywhere, all of them. The community of Christ was intended, according to Jesus, to be incredibly diverse, broad, wide. The Holy Spirit's action on Pentecost days later affirmed that with Jesus' closest disciples supernaturally empowered to announce the goodness of God's people, from to people from all around the world in their native languages. And then there's the whole book of Acts and all of the Apostle Paul's letters. And the more I read the New Testament, the Gospels, but also uh, more specifically, the book of Acts and the letters of the Apostle Paul that come after that, the more I see how much the New Testament, including or especially after the Gospels, is this collection of books written in a Jewish culture by mostly Jewish people, except for Luke, and written to a largely Jewish community, a primarily Jewish community, Jewish Christian, Christian Jewish community of people about an increasingly generous inclusion of Gentile people in other words, all the other people of the world, in the message of the good news of Jesus and in the community of Christ. So instead of drawing lines, Jesus drew circles. Instead of drawing lines and saying, you're in and you're out, or building walls, Jesus drew these continually larger and larger and larger circles that were intended to bring people in. And now think about this for a moment. Think about what the implications of such a worldview and such a gospel and such a Lord would mean for the world today. For the Middle East. Thank you, Kristen, for your prayers. For the Middle East, for Israel, for Gaza, for Hamas, for the peninsula, for San Francisco, that hotbed of heathenism. For your neighborhood and mine, for American Christianity and for the church today. 
In my personal Bible reading uh, this week, I came across, uh, read through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, to the Colossians, where the Apostle Paul writes, here, in other words, in Christ, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That doesn't seem very narrow. In chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, we read these words, after this I, John, looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. That doesn't sound very narrow. Was Jesus in this sense narrow? No. Was the early church in this realm narrow? No. But Christianity and the church through the centuries has in some ways drifted toward narrow or narrower Churches gravitate toward homogeneity, unfortunately. That's what we humans often do. We naturally gravitate toward people like ourselves. I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, the most segregated hour in America every week is Sunday morning at 11. You know that. But the, the, but the church and American Christianity don't have to be that way. Jesus wasn't narrow in that way. Okay, third, third meaning. Third and last, meaning or understanding of narrow for people, uh, one that is for some people today most troubling. Christians believe, or historically, the overwhelming majority of Christians have believed, affirmed, and asserted that the Christian faith is the way to God and the only true way to God and the only way of salvation. The Christian faith and the Christian faith alone among the various faiths, religions, philosophies, worldviews, ideologies, and ways is not only unique, but it is supreme. And this inherently means, stated or unstated, and sometimes it's stated, and sometimes Christians are explicit, and sometimes not, that all other faiths, religions, belief systems, philosophies, etc., outside of the apostolic, biblical, and orthodox Christian faith are either inferior or simply wrong. But what gets people here, at least part of what offends non-Christians here, is not only or maybe not so much that Christians uh, believe and have asserted such things, but more the way in which Christians have often said these things and the way some Christians have behaved toward cultures, have treated non-Christians the way we've treated unbelievers, people of different faiths, people of different religions and cultures with attitudes and tones of arrogance. We're better than you. Criticism, judgment, judgmentalism. I have a friend, a uh, good friend, who lives a little bit different lifestyle than most of us. And he was telling me uh, yesterday uh, about an experience this weekend in an East Coast city in which uh, he was at an event, he and his partner, and literally Christians with megaphones, megaphones and bullhorns approach them, just feet away from them, shouting to them, you're going to hell. You're gonna rot in hell.
Is Christianity too narrow with regard to its focus on Jesus Christ? Is Christianity's insistence on the centrality of Jesus rather than on some other God or path or way, which some can see as narrowness, is that appropriate or reasonable or justified or good? Well, it is Christianity, Christ, Christianity. It does make sense that Jesus, the Christ, would be the central focus and the central person the central figure of this faith, our faith. But is Jesus' supposed supremacy necessary? What do the scriptures say? For starters, the scriptures reflecting the faith of Christianity's earliest eyewitnesses understood Jesus to both reveal in himself and as himself God and his claim to be God, which is different than any other faith. The Jews don't say Moses was God. Muslims don't say Muhammad was God. The Buddhists don't say Buddha was God. The Mormons don't say that Joseph Smith was God. Jesus really did claim, as did his followers, many, many unique things that distinguished him and them and their faith and their way and this new revelation from God as different from anything that had come before or that has appeared since. Jesus did things that mere humans don't do, like walking on water and healing the blind and casting out demons and forgiving people's sin, declaring people forgiven, which in his context, no one did, only God did or could do. Jesus raised people from the dead. And the scriptures testified in a number of ways in a number of places that Jesus claimed to be God. The leaders of other religious movements haven't done that. They don't do that. That's just one example in the Gospel of John, Jesus is recording as having said in chapter 14, I am, you know this verse. We whip it out. I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm the way and the truth and the life. In the Greek language, there is uh, a indefinite article. Jesus could have said, I am a way, a truth, and a life. But in, no, he said, it, he said it differently. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one, there's no other way, no one comes to the Father except through me. If there had been other ways, certainly Jesus would have pointed people to them, would he not have? He was a bright, reasonable person, the God-man, and in his human side certainly would have opted to not do the cross if there was a way to accomplish or to achieve or reach salvation for humanity otherwise, what sane person, reasonable person, human being, would choose being whipped, shrapnel in their back, being scourged, being mocked, being beaten, having nails, spikes driven through their wrists and their feet, and then being put up on a cross and left there to hang in the afternoon sun for hours and hours and hours when every breath was a struggle of excruciating pain before the spear. Who would choose that when there was another way available? Nobody, not even Jesus. If there had been another way, certainly Jesus, like any other sane person, would have opted for it. 
Jesus wasn't selling Amway and he wasn't selling timeshares and he wasn't selling the jelly of the month. He was as he understood it and as he communicated it to those around him and as those around him understood it, Jesus was functioning as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's one way there was, there would be, there has been only one way to deal with the sin of humanity in the understanding of Jesus and his people. And that was Jesus' atoning death on the cross on our behalf and his resurrection, which sealed the deal. In the book of Acts, not long after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the formerly timid disciple Peter stood up in the public square and before all of the religious authorities of the day and said, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, by which we can be saved, by which salvation is offered. So I'm, so, I, I'm all about coexisting. You know, the bumper sticker, I, I, don't know, I don't know what sort of feelings and thoughts come to your mind when you see that bumper sticker still around every once in a while. I'm all about let's get along. Let's get along with one another. Let's love our neighbors. Yeah? Let's love our neighbors. It's free country, constitution, freedom of religion, all that stuff. But the messages and the worldviews and the key central people of each of the faiths expressed, represented on the bumper sticker, they're different than one another. And who and how and what they represent, what they're about, historically, currently, and in the ways they talk about the future. They're not all the same. We can coexist, but they're all different. And when one religion or faith or way says one thing about salvation and another says another thing about salvation or about their key people or about truth, and those things are different and they disagree with one another, then not everything can be true. That's just not the way truth works. We live in a day and age where, is it not this way, where I can have my truth and you can have your truth and you can have your truth and that person can have their truth and it can all be truth. And we're all sort of one happy family and we put the bumper sticker on our car and everything's good to go. Except truth doesn't work that way. Two things that contradict each other can't both be true. We know that from the laws of nature, the laws of science, the laws of math. We may wish it was that way, but things just aren't that way. In our modern world, there's something in us and something among us that wants to believe that you can have your faith and I can have my faith, you can have your truth and I can have my truth, and really whatever you want to be true for you can be true for you, and whatever I want to be true for me can be true for me, but it doesn't work that way. And so Christianity, when Christianity asserts one thing and some other faiths assert something fundamentally different, having to choose one over the other, rather passively hoping that someone, that somehow both can be true, to choose one over the other, to go with one over the other, to prefer one over the other isn't really narrow as much as it is reasonable. It's not arrogant, but it's what a mature and thinking person has to do. And each of us have 
that to face. In the words of Pilate, what is truth? Truth isn't what you think or what I think. Truth is truth. Dallas Willard says truth is what a person runs into when they're wrong. Just because I want something to be truth or you want something to be truth or someone else wants something to be truth or claims it to be truth or thinks it's true doesn't make it true. Truth is truth. So we need to discern as best we can what is truth. Is Christianity too narrow? There's that uh, Sermon on the Mount meaning, uh, yeah, it's pretty narrow. Jesus sort of says, here's a narrow way for you, my disciples, for you to live in the kingdom and to live in abundance and to live the good life. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a narrow way. It doesn't include lust and it doesn't include unrighteous anger and it doesn't include judging and it does include living, loving one's enemies. Yeah, it's, it's a narrow way. And then there's this idea of, well, is it narrow religiously? Is it just me and my people? Well, Jesus, wow, he's pretty, pretty broad, pretty wide in that regard. Like, it's, it's for everybody. The gospel's for everybody. Everybody. It's, like, really big. Everybody's invited. And in that sense, is Christianity too narrow? No. No, not every tribe and every nation. Every people group's going to be represented. That's God's desire. That's the vision. But then Jesus, among all of the other gods or ways or kings, is Christianity narrow? Too narrow? I don't know if it's too narrow, but it's, it really is narrow in one sense. And I'm okay with that. If what this particular narrowness offers is abundance and the kingdom and love for all people. I'm okay with that. And this narrowness calls people to humility and dependence on God and an awareness of God's grace is incredible and amazing grace for all people. I'm, I'm okay with that narrowness. I'm okay with confessing that I can't do it on my own, that religion is empty. I'm 100% behind a king and a savior who dies on the cross for me and for the sins of the world. Am I opting for him over all of the other ways? Unashamedly and with joy. Is Christianity too narrow? In some ways, no. In many ways, no. Has the church been too narrow at times over the course of history? Absolutely. Do we have a lot to learn? Absolutely. But am I ready and prepared to live the rest of my life clinging to one and only one of the ways on the coexist bumper sticker? Absolutely. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who taught love in a way that no one else has and that everyone else needs. He's the one who died that we might live. Show me something better and I'll take it. 
there isn't. Let's pray. Truly, God, you have loved the world you created in ways that none of us have ever deserved or ever will. We come to you confessing our sin, our brokenness, our pride, our fears, our anxieties, our worries, our uncertainties at times, and our doubts. And we come to you also kneeling at the foot of the cross, claiming your goodness, your greatness, and your grace bestowed upon us and for all peoples who will receive you. We praise you, we honor you, may your name be greatly praised, may your glory fill the earth, now and forever.